0: Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Melissa Phoebos. She's the author of the memoir, Whip Smart. Her essays have appeared in Tin House, Granada, the Kenyan Review, the New York Times, and elsewhere. Portions from Abandon Me, her most recent book, have won prizes from Prairie Schooner, Story Quarterly and the Center for Women Writers, and twice earned notice in the 2015 Best American Essays Anthologies. She's a great writer and a great conversationalist. I give you Melissa Phoebos. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. But I've, it's, I've interviewed you on, a, on another, on a, previously on a podcast I used to do, so I almost want to say welcome back to the podcast. But it's been like a, like, I don't know, maybe almost... A year since we've talked. You've done a lot. Like anybody that follows you on Instagram or social media, you have been to Iceland with Little Ponies. You (laughs) were you cruised. You went on a cruise cruising for potential love interests with a gay friend. You've done lots of readings. How is it? I mean, so you've published two memoirs. Mm -hmm. Both have been well received. Is it different the second time around? Because you kind of make the rounds, right? You do inter- you yeah. things like fresh air, you give in TED Talks. Is it different the second time around?
1: It is different. This se- I mean, isn't everything different the second time around? <laughs> when you have a frame of reference, I think you're both um, more prepared to take care of yourself in an experience, but you also know exactly what to dread, <laughs> and so um, – That's definitely true for publishing books. You know, um, I had no idea what I was getting into the first time around with my first book. Um, And so it was very scary and very exciting. And with the second book, I had a better sense of what to expect and of what to say no to. Um, But you never really know. And it's funny, I was just thinking about this because I had a meeting with an editor yesterday who might be the editor of my third book. Um and as I was leaving her office, I had this feeling where I was like, "Okay, we're really gonna do this again."
0: <laughs> now is she like? Is that like? Are you shopping her? Or is she shopping you? I mean, like, does she want you more than you want her? Like, are you, you interviewing know, multiple editors or like? How does that work?
1: You know, it's interesting, and um, I hesitate because I don't necessarily want her to hear this. Um, but I think <laughs> it's interesting because the first time around, I was definitely on. I had the, the, the short end of the power stick in, um, that sounds dirty, but, um, I, (laughs) I was definitely desperate and would have taken, you know, when I was like 26 and it was my first book and I didn't know anything about it. And my publisher took a chance on me. And the second time around, it was sort of somewhere in between, like, I didn't really know going into it. And then it turned out that a lot of people wanted that second book. So that was a, uh, you know, you could have knocked me over with a feather because it's a weird book. But this time, it actually feels a little bit like, like they're pitching me this time, maybe, and who knows, you know, I've, i maybe it's just superstition that I'm afraid to say that. But, um, but I do think it changes once you've um, sort of established yourself in a certain way. And, you know, I also think that totally aside from my, my writing, um, I'm a very type A, like, I'm a, I'm a very, Like goody two shoes student, and so I work really hard (laughs) for the publisher and for my own book, Um, and I think that that's a huge part of what they're looking for
0: today. So, uh, uh, so your advice to young aspiring writers is just like be a good writer.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean that's really the 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 main thing is just be a good writer, work your ass off at your writing. Um, But after that, I mean, I think some of us have this fantasy that, and maybe this comes from a time when this is was more true that you write a book, you send it to your editor, and then you get fed it for the rest of your career or whatever. And now it's so different. Like you really have to be a dogged advocate for your own work because people don't buy books the way they used to. And also, you know, outlets for reviews and ways of promoting books are so glutted with sources. And, you know, the internet is for everyone and that's great, but it's much harder to sort of get, um, attention for your work and so authors have to do a lot of the work that editors and publicists were doing in the past
0: will you will your next book be your third book be a memoir
1: mm-hmm. it'll be an essay collection um, you know and I think I've been sort of emerging from the first book was a very clear memoir the second book was somewhere in between a memoir and an essay collection because it was distinct pieces but they all sort of hung together. And this one will be much more of a true essay collection, and it'll include more personal memoirish works. But then there's also some journalistic elements that are making their way into it, and it definitely looks outward as much as it looks inward, which is a little bit different from my previous work.
0: But in Abandoned Me, which is a great book, by the way, like uh, cause, which I love. Um, Thank you. I took it back down to the beach with me on vacation, actually. <laughs>
1: Uh, I really do think of it as a beach read. <laughs> For those of us who like to cry at the beach.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, masochist crying at the <laughs> beach. Like, yeah. Y- y- you wrote those essays, though, not, it was not originally conceived, right, to be abandoned me. You're writing these essays, some of which, as you're going through mm-hmm. the ringer uh, around mm-hmm. connecting with family of origin stuff, you know, with your birth father and, and, and mm-hmm. uh, a love affair which was intense heartbreaking and then it becomes a book mm-hmm. is it so in some ways are you are you kind of just are you continually reinterpreting yourself <laughs> isn't that what everybody i guess is doing when yeah when they're writing i, mean, I right? wish
1: that's what everyone was doing just in general not just <laughs> right. writing but um yeah that's certainly what i'm doing i mean the process of abandonment felt very much like all I can think of are really gross analogies, but it was like, I was like, you know, the urge to write something for me is this very powerful, like, it's like, I feel something inside of me, like um, a tumor or (laughs) something that needs to be sort of drawn out. Right. And that has to do with like deep questions about who I am and what my experience has meant. And so I go through this, like, creative, but also emotional and psychological and sometimes scholarly process of extracting that story and finding the form that best articulates it. And then it's like, there it is. OK. And then, oh, no, there's another one. right? <laughs> and so then I go back in with my little tools and I extract this other thing. And then with Abandoned Me, you know, at a, after doing that a certain number of times, I was like, oh, these are all sort of you know beads on the same necklace like like these are related um and i understood that i had a book and not you know the process of the first book was different than that it was just one long sort of unspooling like i needed to examine this one very specific experience and so it sort of it felt like one piece and this third book is is a little bit different and it's the same in that i am reinterpreting my experience and looking at it from another angle and juxtaposing it with other things from outside of me but this one is much it's broader um and and I think I have uh, like with abandon me, it was so intense and so personal and so painful to look at some of that, and and I felt, as you said, like I needed to do it in order to survive the experiences I was in in many ways, and I I really didn't know what it was going to look like at the end. I didn't know that it was a book. I was really just in the process, and I couldn't reflect too much on on where that would lead me because it was it. It was scary, you know, it was too much to handle. And and this book feels a little bit different where um I feel sort of clearer on the scope of it. I understand that it's a book. Um, but the truth is also like you you sort of paint a picture of what you think is gonna happen and what happens never aligns with that picture, which is part of what's exciting and what keeps writers interested or what keeps me interested. Um, but it can also be
0: horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Your first book, I, I mean, you write about being involved in the sex industry, and you and you write about sex in and love with real eloquence. And Alan and Abandon Me, do you, do you, is there in writing about your own sexual history? Do you? especially is when do you get sexualized as an author in a way that I Uh, I remember I remember Amy Schumer saying like you know I'm a Mm -hmm. sex comic when if a guy whips his penis down the stage oh he's very creative and thoughtful but if a woman talks about she's a sex comic I mean is there like a a sexualizing does it happen more for women you think
1: oh yeah it absolutely I mean no I don't know a single writer or a single female writer who who has an experience that in some way but particularly if you i mean i don't even think you have to write about sex to be sexualized as a female author it's you know our culture is not accustomed to looking at women through lenses that aren't tinged with the sexual and so i think it's um it's pretty much guaranteed but for me you know i wrote really explicitly about um the sex industry and human bodies and my own body and On some level, I expected that, but it's still like head spinning in some way. Like when my first book came out and I just became uh, an expert very quickly in sort of redirecting any interview or conversation because nobody asked me about my writing. Nobody asked about the writing or the structure of the book or even sort of the deeper themes or questions of the book. They were like, what was it like to bang people i mean even you know terry gross was like how did it feel to tie people
0: up what are your okay you said terry you know? gross that's fair game <laughs> you said terry gross i was not going to bring it up but i listened the first time i interviewed you cuz that's interesting i i listened to that interview after i and i had not engaged your first book i just sort of abandoned me but you are i mean I, and then i knew about uh your first book just from doing some research and stuff and i thought listening to that interview like i thought had terry never had sex before go to college or so like mean, the the way no Mm -hmm. as as somebody that's doing interviews i get like okay maybe you're thinking of the listener right but like that's not the most interesting stuff in your writing i mean it's interesting in that like it's it's been a crucible for an experience and you know you, you write about you know what you learned about that and your own Challenges in being intimate with other people, but like that to me is the gold. I mean, that's really interesting stuff, right? I mean, that, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Thank you, and I agree. Um, but people get distracted, you know. I think there's like certain topics, and and these are the topics that in our culture, you know, the media, capitalism, patriarchy, whatever. There's a lot of investment in looking at them in a certain way or not looking at them in a certain way, and so when you introduce these topics, um, Everybody's issues just like bob to the surface, and suddenly they're projecting all of that onto you and it's not a conversation about whatever you brought to the table and and in some way i have I have empathy for that you know a lot a lot of what I write about are my own sort of buoys that bob to the surface when issues of sex and the body come up um but it is sort of staggering to really take that in as someone who feels so many of those reactions like people um have a hard time sort of um wending their way through the forest of their own sort of preconceptions or biases or shame, um, it's really hard for people to look at something with any objectivity. And I know it's impossible to look at anything with objectivity, but, um, but it was really, you know, people would just ask me those questions over and over and over again, and I would just redirect and redirect and redirect. And so, I mean, that's part of why it's such a a pleasure and a relief to have a conversation with someone like you who's actually meeting me um, in the place where I am or the place where I'm coming from rather than um, someplace located deep in
0: your own history.
1: Go on. No, me. just kidding. Just
0: kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, do you, so you also teach literature, mm-hmm. right? And, you t- and so do you see yourself as an academic? I mean, in, in the guild, I mean, I'm wondering how much of that shapes yeah. your identity
1: yeah you know it's um it's interesting I've been thinking about that recently because I'm actually applying for tenure this semester and I've never really thought of myself as an academic um, and part of that is just because my my own narrative does not look like what anyone would picture for an academic I'm a high school dropout um I went to very alternative schools um I write about things that um you know are not typically the subject matter of uh, academics or at least not the style of academics., um, but I have been in school for most of my life, and I've been teaching now for over a decade in colleges. And you know, I guess I'm just thinking this right now. I think i I think I would like to think of myself as more of an academic or present myself as more of an academic because, My profile is what I hope for the profession, (laughs) you know, that it not be. And part of why I don't identify with it is because my experience and my choices academically and intellectually have been always steering away from any kind of like esoteric ivory tower, um, you know, inaccessible to all but the most privileged Kind of experience of literature or thought or scholarship or writing you know i'm I'm just not interested in a self referential experience of those things I'm really interested in connecting with human beings and in writing about the experiences of human beings, all of which happen outside of that realm and I mean that's been possible for me which is um which is a real gift of the time period in which I live and the confluence of sort of my own career and experiences you know i don't um I didn't know if if I would be able to get a job writing what I write um but I have been and I'm really grateful
0: for that. So And and I would think the curse would be less about writing what you've written about but just that people read it. I mean because yeah. like, <laughs> like 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 you know it's interesting we had a guy I had a guy on the pod, well the, it will be released tomorrow cuz it's close to the publication date but Kieran Setia he's a philosopher at MIT and mm-hmm. just wrote the, he an excerpt was in the New York Times last week from his new book. Uh, it's called Midlife and the uh, Midlife Crisis. It's like a philosophical mm. analysis of mi- the mm. midlife crisis. And it's brilliant. He went through midlife crisis. He's full tenured, you know, full professor at MIT, mm. 40s. He's on top of the world. He's like, what am I doing with my life? You know, I I, I got a wife, a kid, I'm succeeding, but what do I do? The next philosophy paper and then the next one. And he just, and it's great. He's using philosophy as almost like cognitive therapy through the midlife crisis. But he talked about this, like, he's like, I'm so glad I had an academic workout first. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about like Martha Nussbaum and her success. I mean, what if every philosopher were doing what she was doing, but then Mm -hmm. almost the guilt kind of turns on you, right? Like, well, that's not serious because people are reading it (laughs) and you'd be more successful if it was more esoteric almost.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. And I, I feel similar. And I think that that's the that's the bind that a lot of people who do work that's um, not what's expected in a certain form, you know, like those conventions um, are long held and fetishized by many people in our fields. And so to move outside of them, it's not just a risk sort of in Out in the world, but it's a risk inside of your own mind, because if you've been sort of um, socialized in that culture, you have all of those voices inside of your own head, you know, and so, so much of my work has been sort of wading through my own voices that tell me like, oh, you won't be taken seriously. This isn't serious work. This is oversharing. Who's going to care? you know, and I have tons of uh, of evidence that people do care, that it does help people, that it's doing what I want it to do. Um, but those, those voices are powerful. And I think to succeed in certain fields, you have to sort of toe the line in those ways and succeed according to those definitions. And then if you want to do something different, you have to undo all of that in your own mind and in your own work and then face other people's offense that you're having done. So, you know, his book sounds fascinating. I wrote down
0: He's, he's a great yeah. guy and I, I was you know it's one of those things where you meet someone like this and that's how I feel about your work I mean I wish more people that were that were trained you yeah, know it's interesting when we put somebody I was telling somebody the other day about like why people go to seminary and it's like well it's almost like the religious community says look we got to keep this tradition going and we're going to set you aside and sort of pour the tradition into you so that you can mm-hmm. pour it back and keep it alive and that's mm-hmm. what we do with like teachers right really get, like yeah. hey this whole we have this like tradition of literature you know and Mm-hmm. And thinking about it, writing it, critiquing mm-hmm. it, like and so mm-hmm. you you put people in a special formative thing that's different than just reading or even journal. You know, even mm-hmm. you know it's a different sort of of, of mm-hmm. calling. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful when people like that feel a sense of public calling too. That hey, like I, I mm-hmm. my thank you, like out of gratitude for helping me refine these gifts, and now I'd like to give these gifts back mm-hmm. and, and and bring the resources of the academy to everyday life
1: Mm -hmm. it's true and in some ways i think you know i'm just thinking in terms of like literature and and the academy that is that is the goal to keep it vital and to infuse it with the changes and concerns of the time in which we are teaching and living and and even though it's uncomfortable you know i'm thinking of like you know Older professors, literature professors who are deeply invested and educated in the Western canon and teaching it in a certain way and transmitting, you know, certain ideas about what's important or what's good or what art is. and I think it can be unsettling <laughs> if then sort of younger professors come in and they're like graphic novels, intersectionality, like queerness, Twitter. Um, it feels like it's disrupting something sacred. And yet that is that is the structure that we've built around sort of transmitting this to younger people. And I think that that's the goal that like I have a certain kind of education and I live in the world right now. And so that, um that information, those texts, that ethos sort of moves into me, steeps in my values and in the world in which I live, and then I transmit it to the people behind me. And I have to make it relevant to them in a certain way. And I think sometimes we, we're we uncomfortable with change, right? So it feels like a perversion of our own values, but actually it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do, you know? And I think if we look back throughout history, it's been happening over and over and over again and regenerating in that way. The same way that everyone's like, Oh, the good old days in New York. People are now saying that about the time when I moved to New York, which is when everybody was talking about, you know, the 80s and 90s when it was like riddled with heroin addiction and, you know, whatever. So I think it's um we're always going to be aghast at how things are changing. And yet it's important.
0: For yeah. Us in Athens, know. they were like, Socrates is corrupting yeah. the youth. You know, like I mean, it's, I know. It's, who yeah. is
1: this radical punk? Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think I mean in the academy, which is what you, you know, it's how you, you know, earning a living and like other, you do a lot of interesting things. Like as far as in the arts, I mean, but you, professionally you're, mm-hmm. that's what's interesting. Like uh, someone that does literature or I guess visual arts that teaches, I mean, you live in this world, an artist and yet you kind of, or in an institution that's, that's so, I mean, higher educational are very institutional. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of it, it, part of the sort of public discourse one of the concerns that if you're at all paying attention to anything in public life is the safe space concern mm-hmm. that things like diversity, intersection, everything is mm-hmm. leading to a place where it, people it, it used to, you know, it, it, there are different forms. There's a sort of censoriousness uh, mm-hmm. in, in the political and the conservative aspect of the culture. And now people are, are drawing attention to a kind of censoriousness on the left Mm-hmm. Do you experience that? Is it, or do you think that's overblown? I mean, do you as a day-to-day academic with students and faculty, do you experience these issues? How do you like? How do they sort out on the ground for you?
1: You know, I I experience them to some degree, but you know, I teach at a school that is um, unlike the schools that I attended. It is uh, very sort of you know mainstream suburban American kids like they're these kids are not worshipping a nice nin and audrey lord the way that i was you know so they're actually my students are not that fluent in sort of safe spaces and trigger warnings and intersectionality. Um, and I'm grateful for that right now because, you know, I do think that it's overblown and sometimes I think that's necessary for social change to happen. Mm-hmm. It has to be pushed to an extreme because it's going to get, there's going to be backlash and it's going to be pushed mm-hmm. back. Yeah. And that way it lands at a place that is progressive, you know? Um, but it drives me as crazy as the next person. And I'm like a queer feminist who's like completely fluent in these things. Um, and it does drive me a little bit crazy. Like my my job is to challenge my students, is to provoke them, is to make them have um, an experience of the texts I'm teaching and the world and of art that is often uncomfortable, you know, um, and I'm not interested in sort of protecting them from that. And I'm also not interested in framing them as as victims, you know, Um I, I I see them as having more agency than that. You know, like if a text is uncomfortable for them, they can step aside from it if they want to. I hope that they don't, you know. And so it's interesting because this language of like of safe spaces is one that I've used, but not in the context that it's now being used in this sort of larger public discourse where – I like to create a safe space in my classroom so that students can encounter and tangle with texts that make them very uncomfortable, you know? And so the safe space doesn't mean that we're censoring things or opting out of everything that gives us a feeling. It means that we are in a place where I will moderate and help them interpret things so that they can have the experience of understanding something, even if it makes them uncomfortable, you know? So I make a little speech at the beginning of every semester about differentiating between that which makes us uncomfortable and that which is bad or threatening.
0: It's interesting. Maybe this is like, I, I think of the way you just use safe space. I guess just like anytime something gets into the discourse of cable news it, it's ruined right yeah. I, I mean I, it's just over what, fox msnbc whatever once it's in part of the of that kind of infotainment gladiatorial conversation it's just ruined
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's like there's this idea that like you know we are or want to or the students want us to like swaddle them in a baby bjorn and then read them stories about utopian intersectional feminist Realities, You know, and and that's not that's not that's not how I understand a safe space, you know, like I really think that the conception of the university and the academy in the classroom, you know, it really is built around a place that that is protected in terms of taking risks in thought and understanding, you know, where we can try out ideas, we can advance ideas, we can say things that might be offensive or unpopular and try them out and then change our minds. And, and I very much believe in that model of sort of the classroom and the university. And I don't, part of what I teach, I teach my students is that like, they don't understand school as an intellectually stimulating and challenging and uncomfortable but safe environment like they just think it's it's like their job until they have to get a different kind of job you know <laughs>
0: I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning after your evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned question is yes, or even just a solid maybe. Would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you David and Winona Babico Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald Samantha Blythe Sari Graham Jordan and Danny Morseberger Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening and now back to the show. You don't write a lot about politics, but I mean the election of Donald Trump has been something really unique and strange And I think wherever you are on the political spectrum, right? I mean, th- that's not a partisan judgment. This is mm-hmm. we these are strange political times. And mm-hmm. and you're a New Yorker, right? Mm-hmm. Like I my sense is that the strangeness and, and some people the some people have experienced it experiencing is traumatic i mean it seems more acute for new yorkers and my friends mm-hmm. that i know that live in new york mm-hmm. um who, yeah. who are frustrated with yeah. with the results of the last election and yeah. the ongoing political landscape as it's you know being yeah. shaped is that is it is it affect you that way is it harder as a new yorker to deal to deal with someone who's you know, yeah. uh, 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 you know, Franklin Graham got up there uh, introducing him at an event and said, "You know, uh, God, you know, we've been judged because you know we've spread sexual immorality around the world." And I'm thinking, you're introducing Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I that's not a joke. <laughs> I mean, I thought, wow, Franklin Graham got a sense of humor. Like, like this is, you know, <laughs> I mean, how yeah. how is how is you yeah. is it politicized you? I mean, is do you know yeah, well, how is I life mean, different? I mean, York? I've
1: always I feel like I was born politicized. My mother was. Is it a uh, second wave feminist all the way like I grew up in in marches and like sitting playing with my legos in now meetings when I was a kid like we were a very um sort of politicized family um and I've but I've always you know on my own because I'm a memoirist and because that I don't know that I could muster up the stamina To do political work that wasn't like fundamentally based in the human experience of individuals, you know, otherwise I would become um, hopeless and catatonic and have no energy for it, you know, like I don't think I could do that. but sort of in terms of like telling people stories and connecting with other people, like that is a kind of political work I can do. And I do think that that's inherently political. Um, and I also, you know, it's interesting. Like, is it harder for New Yorkers? I don't know. Are New Yorkers more vocal about it? certainly, (laughs) you know, I mean, and I do think that there is New York is and I say this not in a like superior New Yorker kind of way, but it feels like another country in some ways, like it really is sort of a bubble of like culture and liberal politics. And many people that I know, it wasn't even a possibility in their minds that he would win. And so because we're not living in the America that elected him, you know, or, you know, sort of elected him. And, Uh, And nobody knows any Trump supporters except for like their extended family. And so I think it was really, really shocking and like traumatic in that sense for people in New York, you know. And I also do think that we live in a space in very very close proximity to many kinds of people, included like undocumented folks, immigrants, queer people. Like this is where those people come to feel safe and to find people like them, you know. And so the concentration of people who feel threatened by him and his politics is is much greater here than than in many other places. And so, you know, it was interesting like in the months right after the election I I remember traveling. Um, and, you know, I was on book tour. My book came out like not that long after the election. So I was like traveling all over the country and outside of the country. And, and there was a way, especially immediately after the election, that it felt like a relief. I remember visiting a friend in Portland. And, you know, New Yorkers are always sort of ragging on Portland for being super white (laughs) and, and like such a its own bubble in a different kind of way. But there was something about being just outside of New York, even in like also a very liberal space where everybody was upset But it just like what felt like maybe there was like a collective social moan happening, you know, whereas in New York, it felt like everyone was shrieking, like people were so just like the panic level was so high. It was all it was the only conversation you could have for so long. Yeah. yeah. And it just felt like I was like, I can't sustain this level of despair and panic or I won't be able to you know, help the cause in any kind of way. It
0: was, it was a lot, you know. Did you support Hillary Clinton in the primaries? I did. Over, over Bernie Sanders? Yeah, I did. Because Th- that, that's interesting, like, because a lot of people in New York, I mean, Sa- mm. a lot of Sanders supporters. Do you, so mm-hmm. do you think that the question of identity politics, I mean, because it seems like this is the fight in the Democratic Party right now, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it, Sanders, even though on many issues sorted of the left of Clinton on some issues and yet on identity politics on saying, Hey, let's make space for the pro-life Democrats is, is, you know, do you, is this like a healthy sorting out of issues on, on the left in this country? I mean, how, like, do you, is it, is it, I mean like, how do you, it, it's just interesting, right? Like, I mean, yeah. how do we, how is do we sort a this out? healthy
1: sorting out of issues? Definitely not. But I mean, I do think that there's, I don't know. It's like, I do think that like, All right, I'm going to use an analogy, a writing analogy. So when I'm working on a big, messy, complicated, ambitious project that has a lot of moving parts, what happens to me a lot is that I will sort of write a draft that will be readable. It'll come off as smart. It will have resolve. And it seems to have everything that it needs. But it's not acknowledging the larger complexity. It's not it's not actually doing the job that I sat down at, at the desk to do. And what I need to do in order to revise it is often like crack it open and pull the guts out, right? And and in that process, which can be even longer than drafting the first draft, it looks like a disaster. It's like a it's, you know, there's pieces everywhere. There's blood spattered on the walls. Like it's a mess. Um but that is how i move toward a larger more complex more complete more ambitious work of art right and and maybe this is a terrible analogy but i do think that um i can't help like i don't know if i'm an optimist or even an idealist but i do i do believe in humanity in a way <laughs> and i don't know if we'll last if our species will last on this planet long enough but i do you know believe in martin luther's King's statement about the the arc of history, you know, and I think that all of this like what seems like an incredible mess right now with um like bipartisan politics and identity politics and this division is you know, it's it's a lot of shit risen to the surface that was happening anyway and that we are now naming and we're just looking at all of the ways that we have misunderstood and are committed to misunderstanding each other. And so I don't think that there's anything New happening it we're just looking at it finally, you know, um and I do think that the left i mean it's incredibly frustrating it's incredibly frustrating to see even on sort of like a cellular level, like my friends arguing on Facebook about terminology about like intersectional terminology related to identity politics, um and like you know i I visited a friend recently who's writing a book about this stuff and as part of her research she's at this major State University, and she went and sat in on a meeting for like the young Republicans and then also for the young Democrats and the young Democrats were like eating pizza and arguing and smoking weed. and the young Republicans were wearing ties and had PowerPoint presentations and were' talking about like how they were going to support candidates, you know and and that is terrifying to me and also not surprising. So I really want us to get our shit together. Um, but I do think that if our arc is long enough, that will happen.
0: Are, are there conservatives in your department at, where you teach? Like, no. uh, <laughs> uh, I,
1: <laughs> not in the English department. In my university, on the faculty, absolutely there are. In what, um, in what
0: fields? yeah not to be stereotypical but just
1: yesterday me and a um a good friend of mine who's a colleague and she's an anthropologist and we were going we were driving through the faculty parking lot on our way home from work yesterday and we saw a trump sticker and i stopped the car and i was like who the fuck is that and she was like business (laughs) um and you know that you know i feel like it should be said that i my school is in a red county in a blue state, um, this and is in so, Jer- this is in New
0: Jersey, right? This is
1: in New Jersey, yeah, not far from the city, but um, but yeah, so th- that that probably isn't true at the new school, you know. Um, there, I imagine there are colleges where there are no Trump supporters, but um, but there are definitely some people with with conservative politics um, who don't really care about misogynistic rhetoric. You know, they care about their bank accounts. Um, yeah, it's funny so, Trump
0: got. Guy- 81 percent of the evangelical vote that's higher than george w bush he only got 78 percent like i mean it is a strange i you know i think that so i was watching a msnbc uh yesterday the other day joe scarborough was saying that they were talking about the issues of censorship on campus and 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 conservative speakers sort of you know needing security and protection and stuff mm-hmm. and scarborough was saying "Well, you know this is the best thing for liberals to have people like this because you know he said as a conservative growing up you know i went to the university of Alabama, and there were no conservative members. and i would say things i would make a pro-life statement something that half the country agreed with mm-hmm. and people you know like and the fact like and so what mm-hmm. he says what happens to liberals is if you're in higher educational institutions you just get used to sort of a certain Mm. point of view that half, you know, almost half the country agrees with. Mm. And it's sort of like, there's a yuck response. And then these people, yeah, they, they're winning elections. And you, Mm -hmm. you, and so like, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird place that we're, it's, it seems to polarize even more a, a big polarized country.
1: Yeah, it does. And, And in some ways I think universities are, you know, they, they suffer from the same sort of dynamic, uh, as New York does, where it's when you can take something for granted, um, I don't know, sort of your your awareness goes dull a little bit, like you're not really quite paying attention because we're all just saying the same thing, you know, but people outside are not saying the same thing. And and I think sometimes it's that attitude that that people are responding to. You know, I don't necessarily think that all the evangelicals love Trump, but I do think that they are not necessarily a fan of the sort of um, complacent elitism of liberals and universities in New York city, you know, like in in some ways, I think it's a movement um, away from that. And also Obama, you know, um, and certain um, progressive policies and, and cultural shifts that we've seen, you know, I don't think everybody loves Trump, but I do think that they're more interested in moving away from something that they find threatening and offensive and, um, insulting, you know? Um, and you know, luckily or not, I don't quite have that privilege at, at, my school because I also, you know, right after the election, um, I taught a class on the morning after the election and my students are, many of them are first generation college students. Yeah. Um, they're the children of, of immigrants. Like they, I, I could not take for granted their politics. You know, um, and so it keeps me on my toes. And I also think in many ways, I'm in a position to be more useful to, you know, um, I don't want to use the wrong language, but sort of. There's no wrong language <laughs> to bring new ideas. Like I am in, I am in a in a position where I'm I'm able to be more useful to sort of promoting the values I believe in than I would be at a place where we were all just just repeating each other all the time, and we could take for granted that everybody thought the same thing. You know, like my students. Um, come from conservative families and they don't, they've never even thought about these things. You know what I mean? They don't know people who are different from them. Like they don't come out of the closet in high school, you know, it's not safe for them. And so I think for me, like this is a whole other way of thinking about a safe space. Like that was something I did. I couldn't say like, can you believe we elected this clown? Like, you know, so instead I have to find a way that's sometimes very delicate that creates a space where my conservative students uh, don't feel like they're being chased by a mob and they're able to stay in the room and maybe have a different kind of thought or listen to other people's experience and where my students who do feel threatened by the current administration can write about and share and feel comfortable talking about their experience. And and to to a to a moving degree, I feel like I've been able to do that in my classrooms and it's not it's not what I imagined when I thought about being a college professor, but i'm actually I'm more grateful to be in the position I'm in now than I was before the election
0: yeah it's interesting like this year after the election on the podcast i like I had a chance to talk with in sequence Rusty Reno, who's editor of first things prominent social conservative mm-hmm. then Dan savage and then <laughs> da- and then David French, who's one of the editorial contributors national review mm-hmm. and, and what I realized what a conservative small C Dan Savage was. I mean, he's the guy that believes in families and lasting relationships <laughs> and we need these things in society. And I think when I, when I'm with my social conservative friends who are, who are, you know, really bright. Some of these are really bright people. Like when it's in a non ideological gladiatorial conversation, it makes a lot more sense about institutions mm-hmm. and families and mm-hmm. th- how it curbs things like addiction and things like but mm-hmm. it just becomes this weapon yeah we actually people do probably agree on more mm-hmm. than we think about because mm-hmm. we live in the same world i mean there's only so mm-hmm. we, when you get down to the level of individual experience like there's one human story right hope abandonment <laughs> um, mm-hmm. <laughs> love mm-hmm. uh wanting yeah. to be kn- known and be known
1: yeah you know i had a i remember realizing when i was probably an older teenager Certainly, after I got sober in my early twenties, um, I remember very clearly sort of making the distinction between politics and policy. You know, like my beliefs on uh, abortion rights are cl- gonna very clearly different from many people with who you know are on the other p- sort of political side. Um, but when it comes down to like what I believe about life, what I want for my culture, what I want for my family and the people I love and for myself, we're not different. Like I have like basic sort of like, you know, Christian values are things that I subscribe to. You know what I mean? Like service, um, compassion, community, family, you know, like like certain experiences of honesty within my relationships and and my spiritual practices, you know, and you know, I even remember reading sort of like um about Gnosticism and you know, I you know, in the sort of late teens, early twenties, like spiritual seeking moment for me. Yeah, that's
0: um, what everybody's reading in their late teens. Gnosticism. All... <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> but I but I do remember being like, Oh, it's all the same thing. You know what I mean? Like like Buddha and the Jesus and Bill W. Um, the Jesus, Buddha and Jesus and Bill W. Who founded AA and and Jung. Like we're all, all saying the same thing, right? It's just a it's just a difference in sort of dogma and just like these very small vocal, powerful minority um, in politics are sort of framing it in this way that we have completely different belief systems, but we actually don't,
0: you know. Hey, yeah, I heard you. It's interesting you say. I heard you. Uh, Uh, you were on my friend Jason's podcast, Crackers and Grape Mm -hmm. Juice. And he did the, the kind of the inside the actor studio questions. Mm -hmm. And he asked you what occupation you'd like to do that you weren't doing. And you said preacher. (laughs) I did. You did. You did. And I, I mean, I, I, it's, it's funny because I've, I I listened to that interview like right when it came out, that was many months ago, but like, that's a question I've been wanting to ask you ever since then. Like, why did, like, why, why would you want to do that?
1: It's interesting. I don't actually remember saying that, but but it doesn't, it makes sense to me, you know? And I think in some ways it was a reformulation of what I think probably my when he asked me that question I thought okay like underneath the job title and sort of pragmatic forms of what I do what am I actually doing right and it's not that different you know like I probably wouldn't want to admit that in certain circles of writers <laughs> that on some level I am a kind of preacher but um but really what I seek to do, one of the main things I seek to do with my work is to share my experience, tell stories, and move people into a more open-hearted, earnest version of themselves, right? I want people to move sort of the ways that they behave in the world and what they really believe and understand in their hearts more um together right like the, and that's my goal for myself right I want to act as I believe in life and the way that I believe has a lot to do with what a lot of preachers talk about certainly the preachers that I know <laughs> um and and I think that that makes sense I also think preachers are writers and performers and and that's what I do right so I could be a memoirist I could be a preacher I could be a you know, life coach or an inspirational, you know, speaker or a, a therapist, you know, maybe a kind of social worker. Like, I think that all of these people are doing the same thing, is it's the, trying to reach people, you know? Is the common thread healing? Yes. The common thread is, I mean, I really think that healing is a spiritual and a radical process, you know? And I think that that's the thing that. Everyone who has sort of refocused or organized their life around the processes that promote healing understand in a profound, comprehensive, personal way, the way that that process could Affect change in our culture and politically. You know, um, like sometimes I look at, you know, media personalities or politicians and I think, God, if you could just send him to therapy for 10 years, like everything would be different, <laughs> you know, because people, I think when you're unhealed, and I think that you pro- know something about this, when you're unprocessed or you have wounds that have not been addressed or acknowledged or taken care of, you carry that into the world and it affects everything you do, from the way you interact with individuals, to the policies you believe in, to the candidates you identify with, you know, and I really only think it's when we take care of our own wounds and pains that we can have access to, you know, what we think of as our personality or our true character, right? If we don't deal with our, our trauma and our history, we're moving in constant reaction to them. And we, we don't really have agency um, and and access to our own sort of beliefs and our own heart.
0: Yeah, I've heard you say that like your daddy issues became your lady issues. And, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's so much of what you, you write about. And, and it, it, the two books you've published so far has been about how childhood wounds, Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, these defense mechanisms almost we develop through trauma become like autoimmune diseases.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think that I had agency in sort of choosing my partners as an adult until I went back and really reckoned with um, the issues I had from my early sort of attachment traumas with my parents, you know, and I think that's true. I mean, it's a cliche. We make jokes about this all the time that like, you know, women are always dating their fathers or men are always dating their mothers or whatever. Um, and, and, that's because it's true that we're always sort of looking for a resolution to those early issues until we find it, and and we never find it in other people. You know, ultimately we have to find it in ourselves. But once we do, now, you know, and really as a result of sort of the experiences and even the process of writing abandoned me, like what it was about, and also what it is, um, really sort of freed me from a lot of that. It forced me to face up to a lot of that, and. You know, like the relationship I'm in now, the first very serious relationship after that process is so radically different from those I was in before. And it just feels like there's so much more room, right? Because I don't have these like deep submerged parts of me that are desperately trying to find their healing. You know, now I'm like, who do I like? Who do I enjoy? Like, it's not, it doesn't have that deep, like, redemptive panic, you know, driving my romantic decisions that so
0: many of us have. Have you ever seen the movie Runaway Bride? Yeah. And she remember like she like he's like, What kind of eggs do you like? Yeah. And she didn't know what kind of eggs she liked, you know, because like she just mirrored yep. all the um yep. yep. Do you think as somebody like so you write with I mean, you uh, you strike me as an interdisciplinary kind of person just by nature, because you you, mm-hmm. you know you, you'll quote Young or you know literary criticism or and, and religion and theology. I mean, it, the, you, those kinds of things you talk about prayer and and and, mm-hmm. and the power of like the Jesus prayer. And, and you know, it's funny because I've in several interviews I've stopped and asked if I could read to them, and mm-hmm. it was often stuff from your book. Um, mm-hmm. Is as we become a more a post Christian society, right? Like, is it harder in the sense of it's a cho- you actually talk about life being a choose your own adventure mm-hmm. series in, in this beautiful part about Jonah and in, in your book with it, that's really beautifully written. But, but the burden of the choose your own adventure, right, is that most people, I mean, pre modern society, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be born at any time other than mm-hmm. maternity, right? You get women's mm-hmm. rights, penicillin, air conditioning, mm-hmm. love it, you know. <laughs> but like. Part of it is you don't have to choose what's important. Like there's these sort of sacred texts, whereas Homer or Dante or the New Testament, you know, the Bhagavad, Gita, these things are telling you what's ultimate. And so then you're, but now it's like choosing what's ultimate and to care about. Mm-hmm. If you're a deeply spiritual person, mm-hmm. but don't have the anchors of a tradition, it's sort of like it can feel like a consumer good. It's like I don't feel more mm-hmm. free with all the cereals and the cereal out. Yeah, but, exactly. So for someone like it's a deeply spiritual person, I mean, but not anchored in any concrete mm-hmm. religious tradition that mm-hmm. I that I know of. But it's deeply. Spiritual. I like to preach. I'm, the, I'm about human flourishing. Mm-hmm. How does that work? I mean, do you, do you feel like there there's something missing not being in one of those traditions? I mean, do you ever long for that?
1: You know, I in some way I have for my whole life. You know, um, you know, I've written a little bit about this, but when I was a kid, I used to sort of contrive to go to church with my church going friends family so like have a sleepover on saturday night so i could go to church with them on sunday or you know i have like a i had a very um catholic puerto rican grandmother and i used to love to go to church with her and sort of um you know, and at the same time, I've always been incredibly grateful that both of my parents left it up to us, you know, um, and we did have traditions, although they weren't a part of some larger religious tradition, you know, um, so I was raised in sort of a culture that valued ceremony, which is so much of what I admire in religious practices, you know, is sort of ritual and
0: ceremony and um, reverence, Right. Um, it's why there are a lot of the churches that are growing in the country are ones that get rid of ritual and ceremony reverence and they meet in warehouses and it's interesting because
1: I know it's it's always greener
0: on the other side, you know, it's
1: true. It's true. And I think also maybe those people can, um, take something for granted that I can't because I didn't, I wasn't raised to have reverence in any particular belief system or God, although I really always felt a very deep, innate Sense of something greater than myself, right? So, so what happened for me was when I got sober in my early 20s, um, basically, sort of the 12 steps gave me permission to design my own spiritual. And I went through a period of time where I, you know, went to a Quaker meeting and I went, spent some weeks going to the Zen Center and I sort of investigated different traditions to see if any of them sort of clicked into place with the thing that I that was intrinsic in me and and none of it did maybe because you have to be sort of raised with something and so i very consciously sort of designed my own which borrowed bits from everything like i have an altar in my home and i have for many years and i have a meditation and prayer practice um and i have like spiritual advisors who i call for guidance um and i mindfully try to connect with with the higher power that i have of my own conception, um, on a daily basis, you know? And so that feels profound and deep and necessary in my life. Um, although I do still have a part of me that, um, I don't know. A big part of it, I think also, is that I always wanted a choir. (laughs) I wanted to sing in a choir and I wanted to like be in a spiritual space with a choir and maybe some incense. Although, you know, Catholicism was not even something I investigated because I knew it wouldn't work for me. But but there is something about sort of institutional spirituality that appeals to me. You know, I just I just um, I can't get down with other parts of it,
0: you know? <laughs> well, institutions in general are hard <laughs> things. You know, they're hard things to be, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting. I think of, like Charles Taylor, who's written a lot on secularism philosopher, and mm-hmm. he, he talks about like the challenge, and, and you know, Marx talks about this, Weber talks about it, The challenge is we live in a disenchanted world. Right, and that's the price of modernity, right? Like that, mm. it. Now, again, it's a price I'm willing to pay. You know, like <laughs> You know what I mean? Like I, I like not dying of hangnails. Um, and yeah. I, I don't like like witch trials <laughs> and things like that. Like these are, but it, it is hard, right? Because we want enchantment. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean that. That's it, you know, this is part of what you know. It's interesting, just um, reading your work. It, it is enchanting. I mean, it, you, you something about the way you steward your own story the good the bad and the ugly brings a sense of sacredness back to the human mm-hmm. story and it does seem like we're at a loss for that in mm-hmm. in a world where we have you know uber and the yeah. internet and all these other things
1: yeah i totally agree and thank you for saying that i think it's a big part of what i was trying to do and it makes me really grateful that i've created an experience like that for other people because i think primarily i was doing it for myself you know even sort of i think the way that I, my relationship to my own sentences has and um, is influenced by my own appeal to incantation and prayer and, and music. And the way that I look at sort of the children's literature of my upbringing is, you know, those were sacred texts to me. And it was something that was shared by a huge number of people and also practiced within my family. And I think that the reason that sort of spiritual practice and ceremony and religion has has organized us for so long is because that that works for us. Like having sort of a larger practice that is accepted by huge numbers of people that we can also have a very intimate personal relationship to is is appealing. It's cohesive for us. Um, and so I think that I've been constructing that out of what I have for my whole life.
0: Yeah. And you, I think about like an abandoned me so, how like these sacred texts, like children's stories, and and you employ them like sacred texts. I mean, it's like how Augustine employs biblical passages in the books like the Confession. I mean, they flow. You know, you'll be talking about your life, and you'll talk about literary theory, and then you'll throw in a children's story and go back. I mean, it's that's a beautiful thing. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think even like children's stories are particularly useful for that because i think in on some level they're meant to be parables you know like they have a lot <laughs> in common with bible stories or
0: um yeah cs lewis said if you want to write a good children's book write something that not just children would read
1: mhm mhm yeah i mean the lessons in children's books are are those that i'd like to remind many adults of you know <laughs> Which is maybe why I keep writing about them. <laughs> Have you ever
0: re- read Kerouac's Rules for Spontaneous Prose? I haven't. It's um. I think he wrote it. He wrote like the Subterraneans in something like a week. And then Ginsburg, all these people are like, how'd you do that? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is so real. And then he wrote these, like, they're like 30 things. But one of them is... Um, well he a couple of them are interesting telling the true story of the world in interior monologue <laughs> and then he says that's um number 15 number 17 is right in recollection and amazement for mm. yourself um number 19 accept loss forever <laughs> and then accept loss the, loss forever, forever. yeah mm-hmm. um and the one i think of when I read your work, most or um, number twenty-four, he says, "No fear or shame in the dignity of your experience, language, and knowledge." Mm. A- and you write that way. I mean, you you like it does, and you've been through some traumatic things, you know, and and you're pretty you, you're you you write in a way that seems that you, you don't take you don't feel a ton of shame.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I don't, and I don't, I don't think that's because I don't have an instinct for shame, but because I think shame is a shame is not a primary feeling, you know, shame is the result of what you do with a primary feeling, right? Is that you think you're not allowed to feel it or you don't want to look at it, or you think that other people will find you unlovable if you have it. And, and the process of, of writing for me, like the process of, therapy or any sort of deep spiritual practice is of unearthing those feelings, right? And those truths. Um, You know, like I believe very much in sort of the practice of confession um, because it relieves me from shame, not because it invites shame, you know? And so the way that I write in order in order to do what I mean to do, there's no room for that. I have to look at it so directly that the shame sort of just burns off, you know, because no human experience is inherently shameful, especially trauma, I think, you know, it's like that is the feeling we get when we push it away, right? And and I can't write about something if I'm pushing it away. So it's really about pulling things into the light where they just become what they are, you know?
0: Yeah, Brene Brown says that the thing with shame about it, like, no one likes to talk about it. And the problem, the irony is the less you talk about it, the more you have.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, she is, I don't
0: know. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes She's a Jedi. I think
1: about writing something and I think, no, I should just gift someone a Brene Brown bro- book. I don't have to write that, <laughs> you know? <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you said because somebody, a friend of mine who's a pastor and wrote a great book about being a woman as a pastor and vulnerability. She wrote something about, I'm developing my own theology of email. And I said on Facebook and I responded, what is it? And then she talked about how, how we interact with email. So it tells us a lot about what we believe, about the sacred, about humanity, about ourselves. You wrote this great piece. And I actually posted it in the feed. I was like, you should read this. Um a few wrote. Do you want to be known for your writing or for your swift email responses? Mm-hmm. And you talk about this experience where you were trying to get this writer who is of some acclaim to do something for you. And he just like took his sweet time responding. And you're like, mm-hmm. women aren't taught to do that. Just be responsive, be need meters, be, mm-hmm. and, and you actually, it, it, you, you have all these advice. Advice basically about how to be a boundary professional person. Like, why did you write that? What was behind you writing that?
1: Probably the same thing that's behind most things I write, which is that I needed to hear it myself. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I really believe that most of the answers that we need for how to attend to our anxieties or problems or decisions is already in us or that we have access to it. Um, And so a lot of my sort of personal work uh, is about calling upon my higher self, right? Um, And so a lot of times if I feel panicked or I'm like have to make a hard decision, I think, okay, if this was someone that you were like sponsoring an AA or a student of yours or a very dear friend or your younger brother, what would you say to them, you know? And then it's like I access this part of me that is not um, tethered to all of my neuroticism and fear. You know, it's not coming from that place. It's coming from like the adult, like present integrated professor person you know um and i think i was feeling really overwhelmed by my emails at a certain time. And I remembered that writer that I referred to and I thought, I didn't hate him. His career didn't end because he was inconsistent in his responses to my emails. I just kept following up and eventually it was fine. And I thought, okay, so like, where is this coming from that I feel like I need to respond to all of these minor emails before I even get to my own work? Um, And I thought, okay, I'm going to make a list of things that I would like to remember when I get into that frantic place, right? And I made that list and I thought, you know what, I would like to share this with lots of people that I know very specifically. Um, And it's funny because the response to that essay was um, as great as anything I've ever published, I think, because other people recognized it, you know, Um, and, and, you know, it's a thing that we all need help with. But I also think that we all sort of know the answers, like the pieces of writing that people respond to most are never completely new information, right? Like the most satisfying thing to read, I think, for me and for many people is an articulation of something you already know, right, that you recognize, like recognition is the thing that makes you like, really grab onto something, you know? And so I think like that list, people were like, oh, right. It's not more important to respond to these emails than to make my own art or participate in my own family or whatever. Yeah, when you're stuck,
0: you don't need like information as much as imagination. Like you need to be able to reimagine like what you know, the world you see. Yeah, I think it's totally true.
1: It's really funny. Just this morning, my girlfriend texted me and was like, what are you doing? And I was like, responding to a million emails. (laughs) And she was like, you know, I read this really great essay recently about (laughs) responding to emails. Let me see if I can find it. And I was like, but it's really helpful because in many ways, writing that has, you know, I feel sort of taken to task whenever I fall prey to those like panicked, urgent sort of people-pleasing impulses. I think, you know what? No, if you're telling other people to do it, like you need to take your own advice. And I'm much more inclined to now.
0: When you wrote, I mean, this is like, I mean, again both of your books have been well received written a lot i mean you know new york times you know it, 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 you know these you got you've gotten a lot of attention i noticed a review in the new york times book review and, and you responded to it on social media and and i read the review and, and i it's not just because i like you and like your book i mean i i, I thought it i thought it it was, I mean, sometimes um, good reviews are hard to write and, and mm-hmm. bad reviews are really easy to write. And there are a couple mm-hmm. different kinds of bad reviews. Mm-hmm. like, uh, And that was like just a textbook, like one but like, and And you felt misunderstood. In
1: yeah. The, yeah. You know, I thought a lot about I'm not the sort of person who responds to book reviews on social media like that's not my style I've never done anything like that before but you do post reviews. a lot of interesting
0: pictures on social I do post social media your instagram believe- is like your Instagram I love your Instagram <laughs> life I so like I was showing my wife I'm like Look at how interesting her life looks.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think of it as a professional tool in some ways, but also just like fun. Like I'm not interested in getting into political arguments on Facebook. You know, it's that's not what it is for me. And it's not like I'm not looking for... Um, a certain kind of ego, soliciting certain kinds of responses from people. That's just not how I do it. I don't post about my personal life, you know. Um, But that review, it broke my heart, not only because I am a writer and every writer wants a rave review in the New York Times book review, but it wasn't even, it wasn't a takedown. I read many, many worse reviews. It was just kind of like her response to my book was like, blah. But what, what bothered me was that it sort of, it took this approach that I like I start every creative writing workshop with a very particular point, And that is to read and assess every piece of writing on its own merit. You know, like the first question is not like, do I like this or not? The first question is, what is this text trying to do? And to what degree does it succeed? And that review didn't ask that question. Yeah, yeah. You know, that review was like, is this the kind of thing I'm into or not? You know, and it wasn't the kind of thing she was into. And, and therefore it totally missed an opportunity to sort of evaluate a text um, in a way that honored sort of the tradition it was working in and, and its goals as a work of art. I would have been much less hurt if she had said, this is a book that's trying to do this and, and fails. Like I could have, you know, it would have hurt, but I would have accepted that. But it but it seemed like she wasn't even writing about my book. And that just, that broke my heart. I mean, primarily because I felt like people, the people for whom I'd written that book wouldn't even recognize it in that review, you know? Like, like it might not have been for her, but the people for whom I wrote it wouldn't even know that it existed if they read that review. And that just felt really sad to me and felt really sort of fundamental to the to the problems I see with in criticism,
0: you know? Did you respond to her? Did you write her no. anything? No. Did you, no, think, did I you think about it? Like,
1: Did I think about leaving a... Or just writing her an email. Claiming dog shit on her porch? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> With a no, sign that says, you stink.
1: Yeah. I, I, I never even considered contacting her. I, that would seem both highly unprofessional um, and also pointless. You know? Like, I don't... I, I really don't... I'm not interested in... in in, in that kind of interaction. I didn't think it would be helpful. I didn't think it would make me feel better. Um, mainly what my goal and why I posted about it was not because I thought there was a chance of a retraction or someone redoing it, but because Many of the people I have a really big network on social media and and it's largely writers and people in the publishing industry and I basically wanted to make a point that was visible to other people who write reviews, not of my books but of any books you know, and just to remind them that this is important or that I think that this is important, you know that that approaching a review based on your own sort of Personal feeling about it, rather than an evaluation of a text by someone else in the field, um, like critical thinking. Like employing critical thinking in a book review is important because otherwise you run the risk of of isolating or or erasing that book um, from the visibility of people who might need it
0: yeah no and a.o scott says this right in his book about criticism that what criticism is is it we we receive art subjectively and yet there is a shared truth right that's <laughs> objective might not be the right word but it's a shared like a you know it's interesting private and public truth and so criticism at its best is the sorting out where we, we get yeah. to a more shared appreciation of what the true the good and the beautiful is and, and yeah. It, yeah and that kind of it's funny in the intro to that book he talks about like his review of the avengers movie and how like everybody like uh samuel jackson was like get this guy fired. And like and he's like I'm happy. A year later, my review stood up. But <laughs> what, what was the best critical review? You got the review that was hard to read, but you're like, wow, I might have written it a little differently had I read this. I, I, you know, if I was going to rewrite it, I, I'd take yeah. this really seriously.
1: Um, you know, I have to say I was really, really lucky. Like, it, it is a shame. I think it is. It is a, you know sad to me that the most frustrating review happened in the largest venue in the world. <laughs> that sucks. Um, but overall, I felt deeply understood and, and seen by many, many reviewers. And and then there were also people who loved the book who I think didn't actually quite get it like that happens, you know, and that doesn't have anything more to do with me or my readers than a crappy review. There were, there was a review in, I don't this isn't quite what you're talking about. It was really sort of polar, like people were like, fanatically obsessed with it or they like really didn't like it and and but there was this review in the Boston Globe that really hurt my feelings but the sort of point that the the reviewer made her main criticism was that it was like overly romanticized and that it was like like the lyrics like it was like too lyrical it was you know because the book is very lyrical it has almost and and, you know, it's a different way of framing something that you've said, where it feels sort of influenced by a belief in sort of the sacred and prayer. And it's very reverent. It's very earnest. It's very um, it is romantic, you know, and and the thought I had was not that I would rewrite that book differently, but I thought, OK, that's fair. You know what I mean? Like part of what I was trying to do in that book was also represent an experience that I did highly romanticize mm-hmm. at the time, which mm-hmm. most people do with like intense childhood related, like addictive romantic relations like those experiences were marked by a heightened sense of sort of romance and emotionality and um fantasy. And and that's not for everyone. And I thought, okay, you know what? at a different point in my life, possibly at a point in the future, I would read a book like that and be like, nah, like I understand the appeal of sort of very straightforward, unromanticized writing. Like I get it. And sometimes that's what I want to read. It's not what this book was. And and I thought when I read that review, like I I wish she liked it, but also I may never write a book that is so much that again, you know, it was very particular to that experience and to that moment in my life as a writer. And for instance, the writing I'm doing now, it's definitely me, but it doesn't have quite that heightened, like mythological tone to it. And, and I thought, you know, I was like, all right, I can take that hit. Like, I'm not going to post on Facebook about that review, because like, I get why she wasn't into it. Like, um, you know, I think that that's part of our life as writers, if we're lucky, is that we we take some hits, you know? And and for me, it's much easier to move on and keep doing what I'm doing if I can just accept, like, sure, it's fair. It's not for everybody.
0: Would you like to, before you go, like, read something from your book? Hmm. Do you have a copy of it there? Of course I do. I, f- I figured, I figured <laughs> it out, like, of course.
1: <laughs> you know, let me, um, yeah, I would love to read something. How about... Um, all right. I've got something. It's a little bit, uh, gory can in a sense. Gore. You can um, gore. <laughs> I feel like you can take it. I feel like your, your, your readers can take it. Um, all right. So this, is it okay if it's like
0: a couple minutes? Of course. This is long Does form. I- this is long form <laughs> format, man. we got no you're, commercial breaks.
1: You're welcome to edit it. Right. So this is like, you know, in, in, there are a few places in in my work and in this book where I feel like I really get down to sort of what the underlying thesis is in some ways. And this is one of those places. And, and you know, it deals with sort of spirituality and healing um, and trauma. Right. So when I was 22, I saw a woman suspended from a ceiling by hooks dug through the flesh of her back. We were at a party in Manhattan. She went by the name Lola and I, Justine, my namesake the Marquis de Sade's famous submissive heroine. In a rubber dress and stilettos, I stood on a staircase of a warehouse in Chelsea and tilted my head back. Lola's eyes at half mast, her face was beatific, body glittering with makeup and pearly sweat. The stainless steel hooks gathered and lifted the skin over her shoulder blades in two mounds. All of her hung from those two handfuls of flesh. The puncture wounds wept, but Lola didn't. Her body glowed with pain, as if electrified, as if Electra, brilliant with relief, with glory, with revenge, with catharticos. She was beautiful. I looked up at her, and I imagined my younger self at 11 or 12 years old, standing beside me on that staircase, all those leathered bodies writhing below us. Look, I imagined saying to that girl— Later, when I remembered this, I understood it as a desire to annihilate my own innocence. I had conjured the child in me at her most hurting age, and I showed her something shocking, incomprehensible. I wanted to break that innocence so that she would never be shocked again. Now I think different. It was a tender impulse, not a violent one. And what I showed her was not incomprehensible. I don't know what hoisted Lola up to those rafters, but I know that she chose it i know that she glowed like a planet when they lowered her she was just a woman her face slick with sweat was softer than i'd ever seen it as if she'd just been born the catholic monks of opus day like their 13th century predecessors practice self-flagellation and prayer in india pakistan iraq and iran some shiites march in parades practicing their versions sometimes with knives blades and chains In Chinese medicine, coins are dragged across the body until blood rises to the surface in great striping hickeys. This treatment is believed to treat wind illness and restore the body's balance. In this country, some teenage girls cut themselves with knives and scissors, and few of them described the urge as one to punish. By the time I looked up at Lola, I had spent hours under tattoo guns, had slid poison needles into my arms, had shoved my own hand down my throat, had flung my body at so many perilous things, but I had never wanted to die. I was not a masochist. What I mean is, the difference between what is holy and what is pathological is sometimes a matter of fashion. What I mean is, maybe I already knew that my own healing would never look like a laying of hands, not the gentle kind. Maybe I wanted to spare that girl the extra hell of believing she was broken. We are all broken, and repair often hurts. And the ways we find to fix ourselves do not always look like fixing. Sometimes they fail, but they are never wrong.
0: That's beautiful. Thanks. Melissa, you're a real gift. And uh, thank you for stewarding yourself well. Uh, I really appreciate your work and your writing. Thank you so much. And when is the next book coming out?
1: Oh, I don't know yet. Probably in a couple of years. That's like
0: <laughs> Game of Thrones waiting time. It's, <laughs> I know. Like, so frustrating. It really
1: is. It's glacial.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. And if you're listening to this and you have not bought Abandon Me or WebSmart Run, don't walk to the keyboard. <laughs> Amazon, that's how people buy books now. <laughs> thanks <laughs> Thank um, thanks so for much, talking well. with me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple of things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great check it out spread the love and goodness if you've found it here also if you could go please 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 it takes like 60 seconds go to itunes and write a review and give a give a rating to the podcast it really really helps especially as things are getting off the ground and if you want to consider becoming a patreon sponsor you can just go right to the link on the podcast page giveandtake.fireside.fm you can find all the information there Thanks to Melissa for coming on the podcast. Read everything she writes. And thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, fare thee well, friends.